This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, so, morality. So, it is, of course, a topic that has exercised many philosophers and historians and, and political thinkers for a very long time about the origin and source of moral dispositions. And in 1975, Ed Wilson made the point that the evolution of human sociality is a fundamental conundrum. And part of the motivation I think he had for saying that was at that time, and perhaps even now, many biologists who work on the evolution of the brain think that we are fundamentally and irrevocably and irredeemably selfish. And as Richard Dawkins put it, you know, you have to kind of beat it into the kid uh, if you are going to have the child grow up to be a socially adequate, responsible citizen. Now, it's interesting to me, actually, that Darwin didn't think that. And in 1871, in The Descent of Man, he asks the question, where does our moral sense or our conscience come from? And he makes the point that it probably has a combination of origins. There is our social instinct. And here, of course, he is really echoing Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics. We are naturally social, says Aristotle. So we have social instincts, we acquire habits and skills, and continuously do so. And we have this funny thing we call reasoning, or perhaps we should call it problem solving, that somehow, not uniquely us, but in general, many animals have the capacity to solve social problems. This was also the view of the the two great Scotsmen, David Hume uh, and Adam Smith. So it has not been a universally uh, standard story that we are unexceptionally selfish, um, but sometimes we act uh, in a way that you might call moral. And for the purposes of discussion and to keep things simple, I'm going to mean something very simple by moral, namely that you incur a cost to yourself in order to give benefit to somebody else. Now, that's not an adequate definition, but for present purposes, I think, to keep the wagons moving, that will suffice. So we know, of course, that sociality evolved many different times. There are social insects, there are social fish. But what is unique about mammalian sociality is that it has tremendous flexibility and is responsive to individual situations and circumstances, sometimes unique circumstances. Um, And we know that mammals and birds in general show these characteristics. There is reconciliation after a squabble that primates, for example, and rats will show pro-social choice. That there is orphan adoption, for example, amongst marmosets and amongst chimpanzees. Males will adopt orphans even if they are not the biological fathers. I think that's quite cool, actually. 
Um, these animals will, mammals and birds, will show empathy. They will punish, third-party punishment. They have some understanding of fairness. It may not map perfectly onto mine or yours, but they do. They show considerable facility in self-control, in cooperation, and in problem-solving. So the question really is, why did sociality evolve in this rather interesting way in mammals and birds? And the answer is a surprising one, and it all comes down to the fact that about 200 million years ago, warm-blooded creatures appeared on the planet. And this was a terrific thing, of course, because they could forage at night when the other guys were waiting for the sun to come up. In fact, they might even forage on those guys. The cost turned out to be rather substantial. Gram for gram, a warm-blooded animal has to eat 10 times as much, requires 10 times the calories. That is a huge ecological constraint, and it changed everything. If you have really big calorie needs and you're living amongst salamanders and lizards and so forth, you've got to do better than they especially because there's other warm-blooded animals about as well. And basically, there are many ways you might have, or Mother Nature might have achieved this, but big intelligence was the answer. And in the case of mammals, that involved this wholly new structure that all mammals have and that no non-mammals have, and that is cortex. Aside about birds, they appear, given what we know now at the microstructural level about wiring, that they have a homologue of cortex. If you're going to be really intelligent and you're going to do it in a flexible way, you can't hang around waiting for your genes to program that all in. Learning is what you need. And as Terry showed in the case of these deep learning networks, that's the secret sauce. Big learning, however, means something kind of costly, and it means immaturity. And that's because the neurons that are going to do the learning or embody what is learned have to have space to grow. And you can see from the, the slide on the bottom what some of that growth actually looks like. Um, Jean-Pierre Changeur has this calculation that in the human brain at birth, babies acquire about 10 million synapses per second, which is quite astonishing. So the trouble is, though, uh, all that immaturity is going to give you big learning. It's going to give you big intelligence. However, you are born helpless. So as Sarah Hurdy has uh, very insightfully realized Mother Nature had to pick on somebody to take care of these. And that somebody happened to be the person who was close by, mothers. And of course, eventually, uh, fathers got into the story as well. So in the evolution of the mammalian and the avian brain, there was a reorganization which we can sort of metaphorically conceive of in the following way. That although all animals have the wiring to see to their own needs, their warmth, their food, and their safety, 
It's as though the wiring in the case of mammals and birds sort of expanded so as to include the babies, me and mine. And that was the huge, amazing genetic change, especially in the context of having this new structure uh, cortex. Now, we don't know all the details of how that was achieved, but we do know that there is a suite of neurochemicals that play a crucial role in bringing that about, in bringing it about that the mother has the passion to care for the babies, and that's by virtue of attachment to those babies, like it's part of her. We know that oxytocin is a crucial element in that. Oxytocin was repurposed by nature from its role in, in uh, the body and put in the brain to serve for bonding and attachment. Uh, there are various places we now know where it comes from, but principally it comes from the hypothalamus, the very ancient subcortical structure, and oxytocin is released both into the pituitary, but it's also released into the brain. Other neurochemicals that are really important for this include uh, the endogenous cannabinoids, then the endogenous opioids that make you feel good, <laughs> dopamine that is very crucial for learning and for reward, that is finding certain things like cuddling the babies feels really good and that's also rewarding. And so you have this lovely biofeedback loop uh, that tends to work pretty well. So he might say, okay, well, that's a nice story about mums and babies and mammals and birds, but um, how does that link up to morality, to this really highfalutin thing uh, that we think about? And I think the answer is that with, and now here I'm guessing, rather small genetic changes, you can extend, as in the case of the prairie voles, you can extend bonding from babies to also mates, or in other cases to kin, or in yet other cases to friends. And different species will have different patterns of what kind of social bonding and what kind of social attachments work very well for them in that context. For humans, Almost certainly, we are intensely and highly social. We're almost like marmosets. We're quite a bit like wolves. And, um, but like them, we also see variability. Some, some people, like the old prospectors I knew as a kid, or the loggers, they kind of like to be by themselves quite a bit, but they do also want social uh, connections from time to time. Other people are intensely compassionate and sometimes so much so that we call them rather ungratefully as do-gooders. So depending on the species and how it makes a living, then we can see that attachment will extend in various ways and to varying degrees, although it's probably also always highest for babies and family. Now, of course, since Joe brought up the point about culture, it's really important to emphasize that while the oxytocin story provides what you might call the platform 
for moral behavior. It's the learning of how to get on. It's those habits and skills that Darwin talked about that are really important for a group having the kind of cohesion so that it works well for basically everybody. But learning norms and rules only works because we like each other, because we want to be with each other, because disapproval is painful and approval is pleasurable. So the emotions, of course, are going to be highly engaged. And so when people talk about their conscience lacerating them. What they really are talking about is the kind of history that produced in their midbrain dopamine system and in their hypothalamus a certain kind of response to a particular idea or proposal or action. Now there's another thing about oxytocin which is really quite interesting. And that is that there is a kind of, crudely speaking, opposition between the stress hormones like cortisol and oxytocin. So when oxytocin levels go up, stress hormones go down, which means you feel less anxious, you feel more comfortable, this person's kind of nice, well, you know. And if you're a chimpanzee, you might even start grooming each other. If you're a human, you'll talk to each other. Uh, and you might exchange confidences. That's kind of like grooming in chimpanzees. And the interesting thing is that when individuals trust and like each other, cooperation can quite naturally emerge. In other words, although it's tempting for some biologists to think we have to have a gene for it, maybe it just emerges as part of what is likely to happen when you've got a nice oxytocin flood and there's a job to be done. So this is just a picture of, of the Inuit who are highly cooperative. Incidentally, the females don't forage because there isn't really much to forage for. I mean, you know, there's a few berries around in the summer, but that's kind of it. Not that they aren't busy, uh, but they don't forage. Um, much at all. Um, and so cooperation can be very satisfying, just as learning by imitation, learning by trial and error to have a certain skill can be very satisfying and also give you status uh, within the group. And here are the, the Inuit in a whaling boat, where, of course, again, the cooperation is very intense, very moment by moment. It has to be exact, because in the old days, of course, they didn't have firearms. They had spears made out of whalebone. Now, I mean, I, I am very um, thrilled, really, to hear the respects in which we humans are, um, are unique. But I have this kind of stubborn part where I kind of like to see also the links to non-humans. And wolves are, are a particular favorite, although Matsuzawa's chimpanzees I'm very fond of, and I found myself really liking the horses today, too. Um, but in this particular slide, what you'll see is a, a moose uh, mother with her newborn calf and strategically placed are the wolves. They form a pack, 
The pack has one breeding pair. Incidentally, those who are not engaged in the breeding, allo parent, the pups, uh, and help train the pups and help support the female by bringing in food. But anyhow, they are very, very strategic, and there is a tremendous amount for the young ones to learn. So the adolescents will be hanging back watching everything. When they're old enough, they'll be allowed to take part. Famously, of course, they are very, very efficient at this, and indeed, they got the calf. Uh, The one at the back here kept harassing uh, the moose who knew that her leg was in danger. The others came in from the front, game over. Now, in the next slide, I'm just going to show you um, an experiment that was done at the Wolf Center in Austria, which is doing some absolutely stunning work on cooperation in wolves. And uh, Kent and I hope that this will, <laughs> this will work. Okay, so, uh, so what you're going to see is the wolves are, are tasked to do the pulling task jointly, simultaneously, in order to get food. So watch, yeah. So the one guy waited until the other guy got there. And then they had to do it exactly at the same time. These guys are so fast, they read each other so precisely. uh, And they do it. Interestingly, what they found was that dogs would cooperate to do it with a human, but they won't cooperate with another dog to do it. And they don't really know why. Um, That's a story about self-domestication, I fear. Uh, (laughs) um, But it is very interesting that the wolves, and probably, I'm guessing, huskies, have sufficient independence, and they aren't so beholden to the human that they will go ahead. But they will wait until the other one gets there so that they can pull it simultaneously. And my final wolf story is another story about cooperation. But this is a story some of you will have heard before. But it's between ravens and wolves, who in the natural state in the North Woods will play together to a degree. But here's the thing, and this has been seen in a number of packs. If the raven knows where there's a kill by, let's say, a bear, The raven will come and alert the wolves. Hop, 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 squawk, squawk. The wolves know what that means. They come together, they howl, the pack forms, and they follow the raven through the woods to the kill. And here's the picture of the wolves having arrived. You can see the raven down here. And the wolves have to drive off the grizzly, and they do. They harass and harass and harass the poor old lone grizz who finally, probably has had his fill anyway, gives up and the wolves take over. What's in it for the raven? Yeah, so meanwhile, it's not just the goodness of his heart, but then maybe a lot of cooperation isn't. So he goes and gets his pals. They all come back. And they may just eat with the wolves, which does sometimes happen, or they may harass the wolves until the wolves leave. But the nice part of that story, and biologists will tell me this is not cooperation, this is uh, uh, symbiosis, you know, learn something. Um, um, But it looks like cooperation to me, and I wouldn't say that if ravens weren't so smart. 
um, and they are. And I haven't said much about birds except that pair bonding amongst birds is about 98%. Pair bonding amongst mammals is, is a much lower percentage in the single digits. So, so there are interesting reasons for that, having to do with how birds make a living. I mean, a mother bird on her own is just not going to make it because she's off foraging, and the ravens or the owls or the eagles will come, and that's that. Um, but I think this cross-species cooperation is a very interesting phenomenon, and it has been, been seen in, in other species as well, but it's particularly well documented in, in the case of wolves. So yeah, I think we probably can be called super cooperators and self-domesticated and all that, but it's very interesting to me that, that other animals, such as marmosets, wolves, and so forth um, are quite extraordinary in their degree of sociality. And I call it morality. It seems to me it's as good as you get. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.